Hey friends, welcome. I'm glad you're joining uh, with us today. My name's Luke, one of the pastors at Covenant Church. And um, unfortunately, we had to move all of our services to online today because of the inclement weather. <clears throat> I hope you um, are warm wherever you're at. I invite you to get a Bible and a paper and pen out. And um, we'll dive in um, to Ephesians chapter 5. But before we jump in, um, we're talking about marriage today. And oftentimes when we do uh, talk about marriage, all the single people and the teenagers just kind of check out. But my encouragement is please don't do that. Teenagers, those of you, let me speak specifically to you. Um, life and love is not about finding the one. I love this quote by Andy Stanley. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. In other words, take what you learned today about what the ultimate marriage is supposed to look like and begin to practice and apply some of those things now so that when you meet the young man or the young woman who you want to marry, they might actually want to marry you as well because you've been working on you. Also, quick statement to husbands and wives, resist the urge to be the Holy Spirit for your spouse. The nudging, the highlighting, the you're terrible at this, bro, that kind of stuff. Um, if they're a believer, they have the Holy Spirit and he will bring conviction and comfort where is necessary. So it would probably help us out to read this, um, this whole passage. Um, and then we're going to, again, focus really on verses 31 and 32. Um, but it's in light of the whole context. Paul is talking about relationships. And he starts in verse 21 by saying, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This is God's word. This phrase he talks about at the end of this, there's so much in this passage, we don't have time to dig into this. We've referred to this multiple times yeah, through services. You've heard some of this teaching before. Um, but I want to focus in on this uh, 31 and 32, this this mystery is profound. The two uh, becoming one flesh, Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. One translation says um, it is of far-reaching importance or it has many implications. The NIV says this is a profound mystery. But what is meant by mystery here? 
And what mystery um, is, is it actually referring to? For Paul, in this letter, he uses this word uh, before. Uh, the Greek is mysterion. It means a secret revelation made known to us by, by or through this special dispensation of grace. Meaning that on a supernatural level, God is opening up our eyes that we might see into this mystery, that we might, we might solve the riddle that's in front of us. What Paul is saying here is because of this mystery, everything that he's saying here of marriage also has a double meaning referring to our relationship with Christ. In other words, there's some things that we would never know about Christ without the illustration of marriage and some things we could never know about marriage or how it works without knowing Christ and experiencing intimacy with him. And if you don't know both or have a purview of both, it's hard to understand either. You can't completely understand one without understanding the other. Now, that doesn't mean you have to get married to understand it. Paul wasn't married and neither was Jesus. But the illustration of marriage, we understand. Jason said a few weeks ago, and I've been thinking through this, trying to communicate the love of God to us. Through Scripture, God compares His love to a nursing mother, to a great and loving father, that we are His brother and sister, the brother and sister of Jesus. We've been an adopted orphan, now welcomed into the family. We've been uh, compared to a great friend, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I love all of this effort to try to communicate this unfathomable love that God has for us by using the closest human relationships that we can identify with. You know, like when you ex try to explain deep things to a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a ten-year-old, and you're having to use, it's kind of like this. This is, this is what Scripture is saying, and this is what Paul's saying specifically in this passage, that this is the mystery, that the husband and wife relationship ultimately reflects to the watching world the love of God for His bride, the church. So, what does marriage teach us about our relationship with Jesus? And uh, really, really two things. One, it teaches us repentance and grace. Marriage teaches us this like nothing else can. And it teaches us the relationship of intimacy that leads uh, towards fruitfulness. So, repentance and grace, intimacy and fruitfulness... We're going to tackle each of these. And um, Tim Keller actually talks about these things in the book, um, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, that uh, many of you probably have uh, access to. First, repentance and grace. Repentance and forgiveness are not high values in our culture. As a matter of fact, our culture tells you not to forgive. Or if you forgive, man, you're going to appear so weak. Instead, even today, we've... In our culture, we've moved into a new thing called cancel culture. I read about cancel culture for the first time in a New York Times article way back in 2019 about um, a young girl who was kind of a misfit and didn't fit the popular crowds. And um, her friends canceled her, so to speak. And they had this language in the high school there, meaning that don't act like she's not even here. Not to bully her, just act like she's not e that she doesn't even exist which led this poor girl to um, great lengths. I think, if I remember the article correctly, even um, attempting to take her own life. And that's the world we live in. Not a world of forgiveness and repentance, but a world of um, hatred and cancel. Now, if we do forgive, 
Our forgiveness is often passive aggressive. We'll shake our head and say, sure, brother, sure, sister, sure, spouse, sure, whatever. I'm going to forgive you. But even as we say it, it's almost like our fingers are crossed. We only continue to bring it up in front of other people or we save it as like this kryptonite that we're going to bring out um, to take you down if you ever do something else that we don't like. And that is not forgiveness, certainly not repentance. In our culture, forgiveness puts you in a place of weakness where it says you'll be crushed. But if marriage shows us anything, it shows us the exact opposite. And listen, listen. If you don't forgive, if you don't learn to dismiss and uh, let go and not bring this offense up, if you don't learn how to forgive, you're going to be crushed in marriage. You're never going to have joy in marriage without forgiveness. It's in marriage that you see for the first time that you can't be saved by your works, that you're dependent upon the grace of someone else. You can't. You can't be perfect all the time in marriage, even if you try so hard. Eventually in marriage, you're going to blow it. Sometimes it's in small things. Sometimes it's in huge things. But you're going to blow it. And when you blow it, you're reminded of your own need for grace. This is how it teaches us repentance and grace. This is a gospel cycle that we've used uh, before in the past. That if you think about in the Garden of Eden, when we were created, it started with peace. Everything was peaceful. God created them, gave them things to do, things peaceful. And then sin entered the picture. And then with sin came uh, alienation. And then with alienation, um, they were separated from God, if you remember. They were moved far from, um, from Him, hiding from Him. And then God shows up on the scene and begins to communicate His initiating Love. God takes the first step to cover the chasm that sin created through alienation. God moves in and initiating love leads to repentance, ultimacy, reconciliation. The promised seed is mentioned there that God's going to restore everything back to to uh, this perfectness. And we're still longing for that day. But uh, the promised seed that Jesus was coming that ultimately leads to peace. And this is what we see here. This gospel cycle at work in our relationship with God. But we also see this gospel cycle at work in marriage. Everything in marriage, you think about it, you're married uh, at your wedding, head off to Cabo or somewhere else, and everything's pretty peaceful. I mean, people bringing you drinks and tacos on the beach. I mean, that's a pretty good life. So everything's peaceful for a couple days or a couple weeks, maybe. Until someone decides to live for their own glory, then we see sin entering the picture. And that results in alienation, results in division, results in feeling the tension. Married couples, you've ever been there where you just feel the tension? Not even just in marriage, just in relationships. You can see this in relationships, too, if you got a good friend. And um, one of you in the friendship does something wrong, you feel the tension. Maybe you're given the cold shoulder The tension is there. The alienation is there. Things aren't right in the relationship. But then someone reaches through the distance and initiates love, begins to do the work of reconciling. Sometimes it's the offended person. Sometimes it's the offender. I've gone to Ashley before in marriage and said, 
babe, I'm so sorry I did this. And I cover the gap. However, sometimes while I'm wallowing in my own pride and junk of something that I've done, Ashley will approach me with such kindness and say something like, babe, I know you're swamped. I know you're, you're working hard. I know you're tired. I know you're overwhelmed. Let's talk about what happened. Do you see what she did there? Even if I did the thing that offended her, she's not waiting for me to apologize she begins the work of initiating love through kindness and understanding. And this is what Jesus does, right? The kindness shown ultimately leads to repentance. This is what Romans 2 talks about. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, Paul would write, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. You see how this works in the gospel cycle. Finally, there's reconciliation that leads to peace. And you see this in our relationship with God, how this gospel cycle plays out in repentance and grace. There's God's side, this unconditional and electing love. God has every right to be angry with us, but he puts his wrath away, places it on Jesus on the cross, and then covers us with his love. I know what you've done. I know the condition of sin that you're in, but I choose to love you anyway. Jesus was the full extent of God's love towards us. There's God's side. Then there's the human side to us. Our side is repentance. We see the depth and sickness of our sin and we see the joy and love of God lavished upon us anyway. And that should lead us to repentance. Concerning our sin, we know it's God that makes the first move, who chases after us, the offended pursuing the offender. And that just explains the greatness of his love. However, in marriage, it happens both ways. And it's got to happen both ways. If you're married, you know that it's dependent upon this. Sometimes it's the offended who makes the first move and reach out. Sometimes it's the offender. It happens both ways. But in order for marriage to work, and here's the point, forgiveness and repentance has to happen. So men, if you're about to go to bed and you know that there's alienation between you and your spouse for something that wasn't your fault, it's still your move, man. We still offer the initiating love. I remember some of the smallest things that somehow, you know, it's so weird how this works in marriage and relationships. Some of the smallest things is what drives us crazy. And I just remember multiple times just laying there in bed being so upset with Ashley. And if I told you what it was, you would laugh at me because it was something so silly. And yet the love of God, if you listen to the spirit, will just push you towards that initiating love. Dude, get over yourself and love your wife. Like Christ loved the church. And as we repent as Christians, we remember all over again that it's only by grace that we're allowed to continually walk with God. The way that you know that you're a forgiven sinner is that you can continually forgive. And if you can't forgive, you've forgotten that you're a forgiven sinner. And as this happens over and over, in marriage, in small ways, maybe every day where you're offended, you're irked by something your spouse did, but you initiate love towards them anyway that leads to repentance and reconciliation. And this little dance 
has to happen continually in a marriage for us to have a marriage that moves from I'm just surviving that uh, shoulder to shoulder marriage that Jason uh, talked about a while back towards a face to face marriage, a marriage that is thriving. We have to show grace in the little things. We don't just wait for the big things to show grace in. We have to show grace in the little things because we live in the little things. I've done such a poor job of this in my own marriage. I remember one of the biggest disagreements we got into um, early on with uh, Ashley and myself was where to put the dishes after you've eaten. I grew up in a home where you were winning at least I had thought this. My mom's probably watching this and she probably <laughs> disagrees with this. But I grew up thinking, you know, if I could only get my dish from the table to the sink. Right. That was winning from the table to the sink. Yet when I married Ashley, she's like, hey, you you take it from the table to the sink. Why don't you just take it from the sink to the dishwasher? And, you know, and she's talking to me. I remember this conversation in that first little house we lived in, just like as yesterday. Why can't you take it from the sink to the dishwasher? It's just so easy. And then I spouted off something like this. Well, if it's just so easy, why don't you just do it? And, um, and that, that, that didn't go well for me um, for a little bit. Um, but, but you see, as I was defending myself, and to be honest, Ashley's watching, I still do a pretty poor job at this. Um, I had to realize at some point that this is one of the things that really frustrated my wife. I knew I could do better. There's a thousand of those things, I'm sure she could give you a list. But between married couples, married couples, you come from two different upbringings, two different rhythms, two different patterns, two different uh, uh, ways of understanding. We've all got pet peeves of what drives me crazy about them and drives me crazy. And so this is this is why I say marriage kind of reminds us of this relationship with Jesus, because we're always um, showing forgiveness, repentance and grace. Lousy marriages are made of thousands of instances where people refuse to repent. They just accept alienation and they decide to live there. Can you imagine just deciding to live in the state of alienation? Max Licato tells this illustration. Maybe you've read it. I don't remember what book I read it in. He tells this uh, illustration of uh, a married couple who... Um, it's all excited about going on their honeymoon. They get ready to go on their honeymoon. They show up late at this place. They, they walk inside this Airbnb or whatever it is. And it's just like this lousy like garage apartment. And, you know, it's a wedding. You've been planning up to this. You're going to go to the best. And, you know, you stay in this lousy garage apartment for your first night being married together. And there was a pull-out couch. And that's what they slept on and all the things. They're so frustrated, they're trying to call the owner, not picking up. Finally, the next morning, the, uh, the host shows up and is like, man, what's, what's the problem? And they're like, well, you know, we paid several hundred dollars for this, you know, place for our honeymoon first night as a married couple. And all we have is this, like, dingy little garage apartment. That's not what the picture showed. And then the host, like, walks to the back of the little place and opens the door. And it opens up into this, like, lavish house of, you know, everything that the pictures had offered, all that they had wanted. But all they had to do was walk through the door. And I think so many married couples just settle, man. We just settle for something that is so far less than God's best. And we've got to learn that God's ways are the best ways when it comes to marriage. And repentance and grace, repentance and grace. 
It's one of the things that we've got to learn in marriage, and it's one of the things that points us towards Christ. The next one, relationship and intimacy. It teaches us repentance and grace, but it also teaches us relationship of intimacy and fruitfulness. Intimacy is not something that's just physical. Um, My friend Ross talked about that a while back. You probably connected maybe with some of that. It's not something that's just physical. It's the depths of your relationship, all the depths of your relationship rolled into one word, intimacy. And the result of real intimacy, physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, the result of intimacy is fruitfulness. A couple that works on this has a fruitful marriage. Fruitful, satisfying, long-lasting marriages aren't created in a lab room. They're not created in even the best books. Real, satisfying marriages are developed on the battlefield where people fight for their marriage. They're developed in the gardens where it's weeded and cultivated and given what it needs to grow. Using several different illustrations there, the point is real marriages take work. They take work. Intimacy takes work. If you're a believer, you are the bride of Christ. The Bible uses this illustration to talk about not just marriage, but of our own walk with God. It's like a garden. We've got all these weeds that the culture is constantly planting in the soil of our own relationship with God, the soil of our own heart. We have to work so hard at that to remove the lies and insert the truth. And we do that again and again. Again, sowing and reaping in our relationship with Christ and in our marriages. Romans 7 says this, We have died to the flesh so that we might bear fruit for God. We've died to the flesh. We might bear fruit from God. If you're a believer, before you became a believer, you served other gods. Maybe it was an idol of comfort or success or control or pleasure, but you served other gods. You had a different God, a different thing or different person in whom you sought ultimate satisfaction that you thought, if I could just get this, if I could just please my dad enough, then it's going to be it. If I could just be good enough at school through academics, if I could... If I could just find real love in, 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 in someone, if I could just find these things, if I could just make enough money, if I could just be successful enough, if I could just have enough power. And the fruit of that kind of intimacy as we chase those things, the fruit of that is displayed in our life. When we serve different gods, these different things, the result of that pursuit is seen in our life. The fruit, this rotten fruit really of that relationship with the world is ultimately worldly fruit. And this is simple, this law of sowing and reaping. Every time we abide in Christ, we bear good fruit. That's what Jesus says. But when we seek intimacy with the world, we produce bad fruit, rotten fruit. This is Galatians 5 talks about this. You're probably familiar with that passage. He's talking about sowing and reaping, not giving in to the deeds of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh, he says in verse 19, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all that carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have already forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But 
the fruit of the Spirit. This is familiar, right? Is love and joy and peace and, peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Any good counselor will tell you that's what you want in a marriage. Joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this is just setting it up. And this is for all of us to answer. What fruit are you seeing in your life is going to tell you what you're running to, what you're pursuing intimacy with? Is it drunkenness or generosity? Is it impurity or faithfulness? Is it carousing or self-control? This, again, will tell you what kind of intimacy you're ultimately seeking with the Father. So, what does our relationship with Jesus teach us about marriage? Human marriage is just a parable. It's just a picture. Only an image of our relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ is the only relationship that will truly complete us. I don't care what Jerry Maguire says. There's no dude out there that's going to complete you. There's no girl out there that's going to complete you. And when we take the burden of looking to another person to ultimately complete us, to fulfill us, we're putting way too much weight on that. And it's never going to work. Your completion has got to come from the love of God in your life. And unless you see your relationship with Christ as the real marriage, then you're going to make an idol out of your human marriage. You're going to begin to look at your spouse as your salvation, expecting them to love you perfectly, to fill a void that only Christ can ever supernaturally fill. Instead of finding your real strength in Christ, if you look for it in marriage, that's idolatry. Instead of finding your real identity in Christ, if you look for it in marriage, that's idolatry. Instead of finding your real value and worth in Christ, if you look for it in marriage, that's idolatry. Now, as God designed, our physical relationships just affirm and remind us of who we are in Jesus, that we need repentance and grace, and that it's intimacy that ultimately leads to fruitfulness. The real bridegroom is Christ. Even the best possible marriage can never fully satisfy. And if you continually to put this kind of pressure on your marriage, on your spouse, you're never going to find joy in your marriage or in your walk with God. And this is a danger for single people as well. Some have this attitude that I've got to be married. I'm going to go crazy. Always on the hunt. Always on the prowl. Listen, you're never going to be happy if you have that attitude even in marriage. Because marriage is ultimately what does is what it doesn't bring you ultimate satisfaction. Again, it's your walk with God. You're never going to understand the greatness of marriage until you understand what it points to. We just never will. Marriage is like a glass through which we dimly see what heaven will be like. It's created to give us a glimpse of heaven, a foretaste of knowing someone on that level and being known on the deepest level. It's a parable to show us an image that Jesus has, the relationship that Jesus has with his people. What great love Jesus has for his people. And then his people respond to that great love. The husband is the Jesus portraying figure in the parable. Loving his bride as Christ loves his church. And the wife is the church portraying figure who responds to the love of her husband just as the church responds to the love and leadership of Jesus. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice, 
the order here, and it's very important. He loved and that he moved to give himself. The aim of self-giving was to sanctify and cleanse. Listen, all of us in here are on different levels of our spiritual journey. Some have said no to Jesus and still wallowing in their own sin, living in the darkness. Others have said yes to Jesus. But we don't want to grow. We don't want to change. We don't want to cultivate. We don't want anybody digging around in the garden. We don't want intimacy with him. We only want the blessings at the end. And it just doesn't work that way. Our relationship might be functional, but it's not fruitful. If verse 27 is true, and I believe it is, just in closing, there should be a major areas of growth in our life. Verse 27 said that, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. Where we begin to look more like the bride of Christ than we used to look like. We look more like Jesus in your marriages, in your relationships, in your life. My encouragement, friends, is to do the hard work to find your identity in Christ and Christ alone. And if you'd like help doing that, please reach out to us. We'd love to pray with you. Let me say a quick prayer blessing over us. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word that is truth to us. Thank you for this reminder, the need of repentance and grace and the need of intimacy that ultimately leads to fruitfulness. I pray for those that are listening, watching today, Lord, that you would stir something in us, that we would seek intimacy with you. We would do the work of being in a discipleship relationship, of confessing and repenting, of receiving your grace. And we would do the work of pursuing intimacy um, through reading and obeying your word. For those that are listening that don't know you as Lord and Savior, God, would you work in their, in the, through your spirit in their hearts right now that they would take a step of faith. And would they reach out and do that today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Blessings. Hope you have a great week. If I can do anything to help serve you in any way, um, please let me know.